lot of buzz in the room. I was saying that it, was, it feels like a long two minutes, but it actually goes by pretty fast. And apparently you guys need another two minutes. Well, it's great to be with you guys. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Steve. And we are in a series where we are looking at first things. And we're really exploring what is essential to the health of our spiritual lives. And in the first week, we explored this idea that faith is something that we cling to through the ups and downs of life rather than letting our life kind of take our faith on sort of this roller coaster where things are up and down. And then last week, Pastor Dale talked us through this idea of discipleship and that following Jesus actually requires dying to ourself. And this week, I have an opportunity to explore what God actually desires from us. Now, I know this is a little bit of a weird question because you're like, what do you mean? What does God desire from us? Like, does God actually need something? The reality is, no, God doesn't need anything. But what God desires from us is actually our worship. Now, one of the things that's really confusing for, about worship when it comes to our culture is that our definition of worship is so often confined to just musical worship. I experienced this actually a couple weeks ago. I was in the car with my daughter and we were playing some Christian music and she stopped and she turned to me and she said, Dad, what is going on with worship music today? <laughs> She's 11, right? Um, and, and I was like, hey, girlfriend, listen, okay? When I became a Christian, it was like, shout to the Lord all the... Yeah, it's bringing some people back, okay? I'm sorry, you had to to deal with that. But just hang with me here a second, right? Because when I first became a Christian, I remember that there was all of this debate within the church. Like, are drums allowed to be a part of worship, right? Like, is this worship or is it not worship? And it makes me laugh because what my daughter expressed is really kind of something that we all know. And it seems that every single generation seems to disparage the worship of another generation. Now, we had this really great conversation about distinguishing our preferences from true worship. But it really calls this idea to us for us to come back and to recognize and to reflect on what God actually desires from us when it comes to worship. Does God actually need us to sing songs to him because he's in need of a bunch of adoring fans, right? Is God like another social media influencer and he needs another like and another subscribe? The reality is no. Scripture tells us in Isaiah 6 that literally God is surrounded by an entire host of angels who cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at their voice, the very foundations and the doors and the threshold of the temple are shaking. And the reason why I bring this up is because of this. If this is true, if what Isaiah's vision of what is happening in heaven is true, then God doesn't necessarily need our singing. And worship is about something more than our music. You see, what God actually desires from us in worship is for us to actually offer our very selves in response to who God is and what he has done. In fact, the word for worship actually comes from this old English word that means worship. And so when we are actually worshiping God, what we are doing is that we are ascribing ultimate worth to God. That God is worth giving all of ourselves to because he's good, because he's holy. And the reason why God actually desires our worship is because whatever it is that we ascribe ultimate value to, we end up wrapping our entire lives around, right? I was thinking about this yesterday. Because my family, like all good Christians, are Niner fans, okay? 
And I just remember thinking, like, you know, by Wednesday, by Wednesday of last week, knowing that the game was on Saturday, I had everything already planned. I was like, I know what I'm going to cook. I know who I'm going to text. I know who I'm going to invite over, right? And we wrap our whole lives around this single event. In fact, I even use religious language when we talk about these things, right? I talk about this idea that I am a devoted Niners fan. At one point, I was literally interceding on behalf of our special teams, okay? And it really struck me, what struck me last week was, or this, yesterday was this, is do I approach God with this sense of enthusiasm, right? Knowing that Wednesday is coming, knowing that this is like the day in which we, we dedicate our lives to ascribing worth to God, do I put more emphasis on planning for a football game than I do coming to worship on a Sunday? Now, this isn't meant to make you guys feel guilty or anything, okay? Like, I'm, I'm in that same boat with you. Now, unless you're like a Chiefs fan or something, okay, like I'm still praying for you, okay? But the reality is that we all inherently know that our lives revolve around our loves, doesn't it? So Tim Keller actually says it this way. He says this. He says, whatever it is that we value or what we love most, whatever is our greatest source of significance and security, this is what we are actually worshiping in our hearts. You see, the reason why God desires our worship is because what we worship, we wrap our entire lives around. This is the reason why Scripture tells us that God is a jealous God in Exodus 34. It's why it's the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason is this, because if God isn't first in our lives, then our worship begins to shift to politics. It shifts to wealth, to pleasure, to fame, to influence, to sports, or even our kids' sports, or even our careers. Now, these things in and of themselves are pretty benign, but when they start to shape who we are, we begin to derive our sense of identity from it, then really we have to really look at, are we beginning to worship it? Now, this isn't just a Christian person thing, or you're like, okay, like, you're saying that because you're a pastor, and like, you have to say that, right? But the reality is that actually there's other people who are, are actually saying the exact same thing. In fact, the late American novelist and writer, David Foster Wallace, who isn't a proclaimed Christian, said this. He said this, here's something that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of our adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or a spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they, they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never, you never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. You see, whatever is the object of our worship begins to consume us, and it forms us in deep ways. And so the question is not whether or not we worship, but rather who or what we worship. And so Craig Groeschel says it this way. He says, it seems that we are good at worshiping bad gods. And we're bad at worshiping a good God. And so today what I want to do is to explore worship by unpacking a story of Jesus' teaching on worship to make some observations about worship and then how we can begin to take steps towards a better sense of worship. You guys with me? Okay, so if you guys have your Bibles, you guys can turn with me to John chapter 4. 
We're going to look at the story, which we all know really well, but what Jesus says in this story actually tells us a little bit about worship. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 4, let's read together. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come back here and draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have five husbands, and the man you are now with, that you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. I find that kind of funny. Our, worship, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's where it started. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now the focus of this passage is usually on this interaction between Jesus and the woman. But there's something that happens in this conversation that actually reveals something really important about Jesus' relationship with worship and his teaching on worship. You see, in this conversation, Jesus is actually breaking down all of the religious t- red tape that is associated with worship around the question of who can worship and where do we worship and how do we worship. And so the first thing that he really goes after is who can worship. You see, in the Old Testament, people worshipped all kinds of gods, but if you wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, then it was necessary to go through God's chosen people, Israel, in some very specific ways. But here in John chapter 4, Jesus begins to change all of that. And so we need to look at verse 4. The first thing that we see is that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Now everyone say, had to. Had to, okay? Now in Greek it's this word, hide, and it conveys this idea of someone who is going out on a mission. They are actually compelled to go out with a distinct purpose. I have a friend who's with the San Jose uh, Fire Department, and I asked him, I'm like, hey, how do you get up in the middle of the night and go into dangerous situations? And he said to me, sometimes you just have to go because you know that someone's life is at stake. 
And so this word that we see here, hide, that Jesus had to go, conveys this same idea that Jesus had to go to Samaria because lives were at stake. But the problem was that in the first century, Jews and Samaritans were bitter rivals. It was a 700-year rivalry. They were traitors. They were half-breeds. In fact, we have this parable called the Good Samaritan. Have you guys heard the Good Samaritan? Well, the title of that story, the Good Samaritan, would have been an oxymoron because to an ancient Jew, there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. You see, after 700 years of rivalry, this divide got wide and it got worse and it got bitter. And so the Samaritans began to establish their own scripture. They established a temple on Mount Gerizim. They established their own worship style. They even had separate messianic prophets. For the Samaritans, it was Moses. For the Jews, it was Elijah. And so the whole point is this, is that for a Jew and a Samaritan, worship was divided ethnically, denominationally, nationally, and even liturgically. And so this woman says to Jesus in verse 19, he says, our, worship, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that you must worship only in Jerusalem. Essentially, she's calling out that there's all of this debate about how to worship and where to worship and who God is actually for. But, but Jesus begins to cut through that red tape, breaking down who can worship, who is accessible to God, where to worship, and how to worship in verses 21 to 24. Jesus says a time has come, which means he's like, it's right now. Right now, right in front of you, a time has come where no longer do you have to say, I need to go to this mountain or that mountain in order to worship God. That worship is no longer based on a people, a place, a style, a genre, or a preference, but that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what does the spirit and truth actually look like? So I'm just going to call out just a few observations that we kind of see throughout the story of Scripture here. The first thing that we see is that true worship is available for everyone in Jesus. Jesus is saying, hey, you don't have to go anywhere anymore in order to worship. All of worship can now be found in and through me. Now, this is a key point that we really have to understand because through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus dissolves all of the confines of who can and can't be accessed by God. You see, the whole story that we have throughout the entire New Testament is that fact that we now, all of us, have access to God in and through Jesus. It's why Galatians 3 says that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And what was first promised to the Jews is actually now includes every single one of us. Jesus is actually introducing a new reality that no singular culture, genre, or denomination can have a monopoly on worship. And the reason why I find this really interesting is because one of the most discouraging trends that I see on my little feed when I go through YouTube is I see that there's all these clickbaity YouTube titles about one person trying to discourage or disqualify another church's worship. And it reminds me of this experience I had in college with a friend of mine where we would go and we would experience all of these different chapels and he went to one chapel and he came back and he was like, you know what, that wasn't worship. I remember going back and asking him like, well, why wasn't it worship? And when I kept pressing, kept pressing, kept pressing, couldn't get a quite a good answer. But ultimately what it came down to was it wasn't my preference. See, the reason why we worship and what makes worship good, it goes beyond whether or not you like a song. 
We worship because God is good. In fact, all good worship takes our focus off of us and puts it back on God. Worship is good because we know that God is good. And the question is, in our worship, are we proclaiming his worth? Romans 14, actually, Paul says this, and he cautions us. He says this, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in, way, in the way of a brother or sister. Now in my Bible, I circled and I underlined this idea of making up your mind because what it is, is a predisposition of grace. It's coming in, predeciding that you are going to be gracious regardless of your preference or your style because you know that God is actually worthy. You see, there is actually great power when we decide beforehand that we are not going to let one song, one style, one song arrangement, one preacher derail your devotion to God. And what Jesus is actually saying to the Samaritan woman is that in and through him, there is no longer going to be a Samaritan style of worship, a Jewish style of worship, but our true worship will be centered on one thing, and that is Jesus. See, Revelation 7, 9 says this, It says that one day all of us are going to be standing before the throne of the Lamb. And that true worshipers will come from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so if you don't like a certain style or a cultural distinctive of worship, then we're going to have a really hard time before the throne of the Lamb. The second thing that we need to realize is that worship, while it includes music, is not just about music. Jesus says that true worshipers will involve our entire being. Now, the word for worship here literally means to put our face on the ground. That when we worship, we are bringing all of ourselves into submission before God. And so Romans 12 tells us that our very bodies are a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God. And that this is our true and proper worship. Deuteronomy 6, and and then Jesus says later on in Mark chapter 12 that our true worship of the Lord will not just include our hearts, our souls, our minds, but will include all of our strength, our entire being. So how do we worship God with that sense of our entire being? And the best way that I can really explain that is actually through um, a concept and a drawing that's done by Steve Carter. And it's this concept of our being that I found really helpful. And basically what he says, what Steve Carter says, is that we are made up of our minds. That our minds are where our thoughts, our feelings, and our conscience actually live. Then we are also made up of our hearts, which is where our will and our desire and our intention and our choice, this is where this piece lives. And the other aspect of ourselves is our bodies. This is our face, our actions, our body language. This is what we do. And our soul is actually the core intersection that brings all of our being into one space. You see, when we truly worship God, it brings all of these different aspects into alignment, and the soul is the very center of that piece. It brings all of these different aspects of who we are into worship. You see, we all have a default mode for worship, but sometimes we turn it into dogma. You see, the reality is that for some of us, we might say, hey, well, true worship is just our practices of justice. How are we serving one another? 
And sometimes we might hear people say, you know what, worship is all about our expression and our emotion and just setting ourselves free in music. Or true worship is an intellectual exercise that you're supposed to dive in to what scripture is saying and what worship is saying, what true worship actually is, is all of this together. That we worship God both in spirit and in truth, that from the soul we bring all of these different aspects into alignment with God. See, my wife and I were at Hume. We used to lead uh, trips here from Hume. We were youth pastors, and there was a girl that was in Kate's cabin. And after worship, she was from the Midwest. And when you come to Hume, if you've ever been at Hume, it is like alive and like crazy inside that room when there's worship. And this girl didn't come from that kind of background. She came to my wife, and she was really upset. And she was upset because she felt like she couldn't truly worship God because she came from a place where she's like, I, I'm not that expressive. And Kate had this conversation with her, and she said, you know what? Like, anyone can be emotive in singing. This is what we get from concerts, right? And she felt like just because you, you, don't, you aren't expressive or because you don't have emotion doesn't mean that you aren't truly worshiping God. In fact, what God desires from us when we worship is to focus on the words to proclaim the truth of who he is and aligning ourselves with that truth. True worship is about giving our ultimate, our, is about giving our full lives to him and not just our song, but everything else. See, when we start to believe that God is worthy to be worshiped in all the different aspects of our lives, the truth of God's word begins to transcend all of our circumstances, our feelings, our actions, and even our understanding. And it allows us to worship God whether we feel like it or not, whether you're expressive or not. Worship brings what is true about God into our everyday lives. And now you might be wondering, like, well, so then why do we sing, right? Like, why do we even sing at all? Well, I'm going to go back, and this is where it all comes back full circle. Because one of the amazing things about music is this, is that music is a powerful vessel for our worship because it can move us. It can inspire us. It can ground us in God's word. We might even say when we come to worship that sometimes it lifts our spirit. You see, when we worship through music, it embeds God's truth into our lives in a way that our hearts can understand. Music is a powerful tool. This is the reason why I can remember all of these songs from the 90s, okay? <laughs> you ever, like, have a song come back from, like, after, it's like after 10 years, you're like, I can't believe I still remember that song. Well, the truth is that when we sing worship, we are doing the same thing with God's word. St. Augustine says it this way. He says, he who sings prays twice. And what he essentially means by this is that sometimes when we don't have the words to pray, do you ever have that moment when you feel like, gosh, I don't have the right words, but all you have is just a song? About 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I was in a really dark spot. And I was in a spot where I was wondering, gosh, am I ever going to get better? Am I ever going to get to a place where I'm going to be normal again? And when I felt like I didn't have the words to pray, it was an elevation worship song called Just Give Me Faith. But all of a sudden, for whatever reason, sitting there in like doing one of my million tests that I was going through, that that song came back to my mind and I just began singing it over and over and over again. And it's not like I was magically kind of healed in that moment, but what it did in that moment was it filled me with God's truth, that God had not left me, that God had not abandoned me, and it began to give me hope. You see, the reason why we attach worship to music is because it reminds us of what is true when we feel like, man, you just forget all of God's words. You lose sight of who God actually is. You see, when we begin to worship despite our circumstances, not only does it give the hope to us, but it gives hope to others. 
See, when we worship and we are next to each other and we're singing worship, we might be singing for the person who is next to us who is like, you know what, I don't even have the words to sing right now because of all the different things I have going on in my life. That in faith we can just attach to one another and say, you know what, but you can sing this song for me. See, true worship connects us to community and it reorients us around the things that are eternal. True worship moves us beyond this belief that worship is supposed to be private and individualized. It takes us beyond my truth and your truth and my preference and your preference. And it roots us in the truth of scripture. It connects us to community. Which is one of the reasons why I find it so hard for me to personally just engage in online worship. Because I don't get to hear the voices and the songs of the people around me. I remember after, after that huge season, we were going through COVID, and we couldn't meet together. The first time I came back to worship, and I don't know if you had this experience too, but just hearing the voices of the people singing next to me literally brought me to tears because I realized I had taken it for granted. You see, the reality is when we all sing together, it grows our sense of awe. And that is exactly what worship should be doing, is that it should grow our sense of awe of who God is. And the reason why it's so difficult to remember how amazing and how awesome God is, is because I use the word awesome all the time, (laughs) okay? Like, these tacos are awesome, all right? That pizza is awesome. My wife says that I live in hyperbole, and I've just embraced that about my life. She's like, Steve, if you were an emoji, you would be the 100% emoji. And I would say you're absolutely right. But the reality of what we are invited to when we worship is to bring all of that awe and all of that wonder and really direct that back to God to give us a glimpse of this is what heaven is actually like. And so as we begin to kind of bring this service back into a close, I was like, you know what you need to hear? Not me talking. But what I wanted to do really was to give you a glimpse of what heaven is actually going to be like. To imagine this vision that we're going to have for all of eternity together. And so what I want to invite us to is to do this. If you are willing and able, and I know we do a lot of sitting and standing in church, so you're going to do it just one more time, okay? Would you just stand with me just one time here? And what I want you to do is I want you for a second, I'm going to look at this, we're going to just look at a brief passage In Revelation, I want us to read this out loud, and I want you guys to imagine what this would be like, what it's going to be like for all of eternity to be surrounded around the throne of the Lamb and to imagine how awesome this moment would be. So let's read it together in Revelation chapter 5, and we're starting verse 6. Then I saw a Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat at the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand 
They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You can grab a seat. That is awesome. That we, for eternity, will be surrounded by angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands to acknowledge the truth that worthy is the Lamb who is worthy of all of our strength, honor, glory, and praise. This is awesome. And when we come to God with that sense of worship, it brings all of the different aspects of our being into the center of our worship of God. This is the eternal vision of Jesus' worth. This is the heart of worship. And so as we invite the band to come back up, I quickly wanted to just explore how we can begin to actually take this next step as we acknowledge this truth that true worship is about ascribing ultimate worth to God. And I think for some of us today, we can take the step by just reflecting and repenting where is needed. Maybe for some of us, it is reflecting and repenting on the things that maybe we have ascribed our ultimate value to. The things that we have said, gosh, like I am deriving so much of my identity and who I am in this aspect of my life. And when a little thing nudges that aspect of my life, I feel like my entire life is literally crumbling right before me. Maybe there are things that, that you've put your, your, your time and your treasure and your investment in, but it feels like you're getting no return. And in that moment, you need to say, God, like maybe where I ascribe worth has been a little bit off, and I want to put that back on you. And knowing that when we do that, that our God is awesome and gracious and restores us and welcomes us. And maybe for some of us today, maybe we have come to really this realization that I have let my own preferences inhibit my ability to praise God. And maybe in this moment, we need to take a new step before we come to this space to take a step to say, you know what, like I am going to arrive in this space before I get out of my car with a predisposition of grace. That whatever is actually going to happen in the service, I'm just going to ascribe and say, you are worthy of my praise, God. That you are ultimate in my life. And regardless of the preacher or the song, you are worth lifting up. I remember uh, being in Guatemala. In Guatemala, you get a chance to experience worship, and um, it is loud, okay? Like, everything is, like, turned to 11, okay? And there's, like, so much distortion because it's so loud. But in this moment, as I'm, like, listening to everyone sing and cry, I was just moved to tears because to the Guatemalan church there, they were like, God is worthy of giving everything. And if this little knob could turn to 12, it would because God is worth giving everything. And so maybe for some of you today, it is simply just an expansion of your worship engagement. In Hebrew, there's so many different forms, like nine different forms of worship, and they're not all the same. Sometimes it's lifting hands. Sometimes it's praise. Sometimes it's blessing. Sometimes it's literally putting our face on the ground, kneeling. Sometimes it's with an instrument. All of this is to say that there is no one form to worship the Lord. But maybe today, we could take a step towards greater engagement. Maybe for some of us, it's taking one hand off the coffee cup, right? And like lifting it up <laughs> in surrender, right? And say, okay, God, like, you know, I'm, I'm in my safe little space, but maybe you're inviting me to more. Or maybe for where you're at right now, that you're like, okay, God, like, you know, when it comes to worship, I'm thinking about so many of these other things, but what I need to look at is the truth of your 
words that I see on the screen. Or maybe for some of you, it's realizing that your voice, whether it's good or bad, like mine, it's just bad, okay? But sometimes we have to sing for the person who is next to us and to recognize in this moment, we're carrying each other as a community. And maybe for the last thing that we can do is this, and this would be my ultimate, my ultimate prayer for you. And that is that you would extend your worship beyond an event. That you don't just float from Sunday to Sunday, but you would start to look at the entirety of your life, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you work out, before you get out of the car to take a moment to just reflect on the awesomeness of God and to let your work, whatever it is that you're doing, be an extension of your worship 